Hello to all of our Where You Are listeners. It's your co-hosts, Michelle Horn. And I'm Bryn Asquith. At BC Children's Kelty Mental Health Resource Centre, we get requests from families for information and resources on a variety of mental health topics. One of those topics is self-harm. If that's something that's impacted your family, we know it can be very scary. That's why we think it's so important to share information that helps families work through this very serious concern. So... We are re-releasing this Where You Are episode from Season 2, Self-Harm, What Families Need to Know. Our guests on this episode were Sierra, a young adult who has lived experience with self-harm, and clinical counsellor, Kim Lefso. One thing that really stood out for me in this episode, Michelle, was how both guests took care to remind us that self-harm can be a behaviour used to cope with bigger underlying emotions. And they also highlight, of course, the important role that parents and caregivers have in supporting their kids and connecting them to help. I really loved this episode. Um, I really enjoyed doing this collaboration with Family Smart and having guest host Victoria Kettis join me. I also really liked some of the unique coping strategies that Sierra shared too. So while our next episode is in the works, here's our episode on self-harm from season two of Where You Are. Welcome back to another season of Where You Are, a podcast that helps families and their children promote their mental health and wellness. I'm Michelle Horn, and I have the pleasure of co-hosting today with Victoria Kettis from Family Smart. Family Smart is a longtime partner of BC Children's Kelty Mental Health Resource Centre. Thanks for having me, Michelle. It's a great new experience to be doing this with you. We are joined together today by uh, a youth and a professional talking about self-injury. And um, one of the things that really stuck out for me as a parent is you can't just tell them that this is going to stop and this is how you're going to do it, that you really have to have those conversations and be in that caring relationship to be able to work towards resolve. I agree, and that stood out for me too. And I think they also both talked about some really unique and interesting coping strategies that youth can use if they're wanting to self-harm. So I think that might be also really beneficial for our, our listeners to hear about. Great. Well, let's listen to the discussion. Let's do it. This is a sensitive topic. We are talking about self-injury today. So please take care of yourselves. And if you need to reach out for support, make sure you take the time to do that. We're fortunate to have Sierra, a youth with lived experience, and Kim Lefso, a therapist who has supported many youth and their families who have experienced self-injury here with us today. Thanks for joining us, you guys. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Sierra, I really appreciate how you're willing to share your personal experience with self-injury. I know it takes a lot of courage and a lot of caring to do this, to support and help others learn. So wondering what you remember about how self-injury started and came into your life as a, as a coping strategy for you? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I started self-harming when I was about 15 um, in the form of cutting. Um, and I think at that time in my life, there was just a lot going on, both kind of externally with family and friends, a lot of kind of um, interpersonal difficulties. And then internally, um, I was struggling with a lot of mental health issues. And when it came to self-harm, I think it was really those really big, overwhelming emotions, whether that was sadness or anger or frustration, in those times of sort of overwhelming emotions, before I kind of had the skills to deal with those, um, that's when self-harm became an option for me. Mm -hmm. And then where did it go from there as a beginning and thinking it was an option to becoming something more of a a regular 
occurrence for mm-hmm. you? I mean, I think it is, you know, comparable to an addiction, perhaps, where it just became a regular sort of coping strategy, um, especially because I, you know, I, I was going to therapy, but it takes a long time to learn um, the skills to cope with those big emotions. Um, and self-harm just was one of those skills that I used for such a long time. I self-harmed for uh, almost nine years. It was, you know, part of my coping toolkit and it took a a long time for me to even consider wanting to stop. Hmm. Now thinking about that, do you remember a time when your family found out that this might have been a way you were coping? Mm -hmm. Um, So actually the way that my mom found out um, was through a physician and so I was able to build this really wonderful um, trusting relationship with this physician and that confidentiality between him and I, um, it got to a point where I I was able to say to him, you know what, I think... um, it's time for my mom to know that I'm self-harming. I I don't have the ability or, or perhaps the skills to tell her myself, but I trusted that physician enough to be able to tell mm-hmm. her. Um, and he was also there to kind of support both of us through that journey of her finding out as well. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's big. So when you think about that and how hard it was for you to share with your mother, but you really wanted her to know, what do you have to say to other families when they their kids don't want to share with them and they're frustrated about that? Well, I think it, it speaks to a couple of things. One, that you know, these are really, really tough topics and um, it can be hard to tell your family or people that you love, um, you know, when something this tough is going on for you. Even today, there's things that are tough to talk about with our family and friends. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also the importance of kind of having those trusting and confidential relationships with their service providers, because those relationships can lead to being able to be more honest with um, family or or caregivers or parents. So So it's not that parents aren't trusted. It's a matter of Mm -hmm. this is hard to talk to them about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And Kim, so you have a lot of experience working with kids and youth who uh, self-injure. Is there anything that you heard in Sierra's story that sounds familiar to you or that you see in the kids and youth you work with? Everything. And kudos to, to Sierra for being willing to share her story. I think that takes so much courage and vulnerability. Um, so full mm-hmm. credit to her. Yeah, there's so many kids that are, are scared to share what they're going through, even you know with a service provider that, that hopefully they trust, because they're scared of what the response is going to be. Uh, so I, I certainly would encourage parents to, to take a breath to realize that the fact that their child is reaching out to anybody is what they're looking for. You know, as a mom, obviously, I would hope that my kids would reach out to me, but I'm also realistic enough to know that that may not be the case because sometimes parents are the the last people because, you know, we don't, kids don't want to let us down Mm -hmm. um, or feel like they've disappointed us or, or, or any number of reasons. And so for me, I always just try and encourage my students, you know, to reach out to somebody. Uh, If I'm not it, that's okay. Uh, But find somebody, hopefully, you know, a doctor, a school counselor, a trusted neighbor, an aunt. There's so many different people that you can reach out to. And hopefully those people will have appropriate responses for you. Mm -hmm. And I think, thank you, and I think that self-injury can be really difficult for parents or caregivers to kind of wrap their heads around. Can you just, taking a step back, just kind of explain what self-injury is and a bit about why youth might self-injure? As Sierra alluded to, self-injury or self-harm really is, it's a coping skill, a maladaptive coping skill, so not a healthy coping skill, and can very easily become an addictive behavior. So we view it generally like any other addiction. It's not just a a kid problem. Uh, We know that about 1% of the entire population actually engage in some sort of self-harm. Statistically in BC, we're at about 18% for our youth, Um, but certainly they can, you know, the kids start to self-harm when they're feeling out of control, when they don't know what else to turn to, when they're feeling lost when they see a friend who's trying it maybe and it it helps for them there is a biological component you know when when we talk about cutting cutting you know 
releases endorphins, which lead to that same kind of positive brain chemistry that, that is like a natural high. And so certainly when kids first start, there's a positive benefit to their brain. And so that's that's where it starts. Like any addiction, eventually you have to do more or do it more intensely to get that same high. We talk a lot about cutting with self-harm. I should mention that cutting is not the only form of self-harm. It's by and large the most common. We're looking at about 86% in BC of all self-harm is, is cutting. Uh, but certainly there's other ones, burning, um, erasing, which is something we see in some of our younger kids where they literally will erase the top level of skin. Hair pull, intentional hair pulling, picking at scabs. There's any number of things that, that can fall into this, but by and large cutting is definitely the number one. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that parents sometimes struggle with or aren't sure about is the difference between this self-interest behavior and potentially a suicide attempt. Can you speak to that? Yeah, that's probably the scariest thing for parents um, because most people understandably equate self-harm with suicide. Well, if my child is cutting, they must want to die. Sometimes that's the case. Uh, sometimes kids who are, are cutting are also suicidal. Sometimes kids who are suicidal also are self-harming. But it's not a cause effect. And the really the only way to know what the child's intention is is to ask them. You know, I've certainly talked to kids where their wounds would suggest uh, a suicide attempt, and they are adamant that it, it really was just self-harm. I've talked to kids who you can barely see any wounds, and, and they tell me it was a suicide attempt. So it's really their intent behind it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's really important for parents to know that self-harm in and of itself is not intentional suicide behavior. It absolutely needs attention. I'm not dismissing that at all. But it doesn't equate to suicide ideation. I think that's helpful for parents to hear, mm -hmm. definitely. Mm -hmm. Most definitely. Yeah. And as I think about the things you were sharing about the reasons why, did any of that connect in with you, Sarah? Did you relate to any of what she was saying? Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many different reasons um, why kids uh, or and, and youth and adults self-harm. Um, and I know for myself, too, you know, over the, the sort of nine years that I was engaging in that, at different points, there was different reasons. And definitely, you know, especially when I was feeling those big emotions of fear or sadness, it, it did, it was like an instant relief. And then, and then, yeah, for myself, you know, I, I did deal with, um, you know, suicidal thoughts at, at certain points over my um, journey, but self-harm for me was never a suicide attempt. Hmm. Thank you. And so in thinking of that, as a parent and, and in parents that I've, I've talked to over the years and supported, the whole idea of, of talking to our child about self-injury is really scary. We don't want to... Um, push them away from being able to speak to us. And we know that trust is really hard when it comes to talking about these hard things. So were there people in your life that tried to talk to you about this? And, and what worked and what made sense when they were having those conversations with mm -hmm. you? I think I spoke to that trust I had with this physician. And I think that is so important to try to build up that base of trust and connection. And then you can sort of ask questions once you have that trust built. And then I think you mentioned asking. And that was a big thing, too, is, you know, having parents or service providers ask, like, uh, what would be helpful for you right now? What can I do? And even why are you doing this? Or I think you mentioned like asking, you know, um, are you having suicidal thoughts? Is this a suicide attempt? So I think asking questions is is a really big part of, of how you can help um, a young person. Mm, and if you. I can jump in there, I would just add if, as a parent, start from a place of caring and concern. Mm -hmm. I'm noticing these things. Can you tell me about them? 
it's really easy as a parent to jump to fear and to judgment and to stigma. But just if you can come at it from, hey, like I've noticed these marks on your arms or, or whatever you happen to have noticed, um, I'm, I'm worried, I care. What can you tell, you know, are you willing to talk to me? And, and if not me, then who, who, who do you think you might be willing to talk to? Uh, just to open the conversation. Mm-hmm. Because as a parent, the hardest thing may be that the child chooses that you're not the person to talk to. Mm-hmm. But being willing to get them to someone, if you come from a place of care and concern, you open the conversation a lot more. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Where You Are. I'm Michelle Horn. Co-hosting with me today is Victoria Kettis from Family Smart. Coming up, we'll discuss some specific strategies for parents and youth whose lives are touched by self-injury. What if a youth does come to a caring adult, whether it be a parent or a teacher or a health professional? Do you have some tips or suggestions? Well, for me, kind of the, there's two prevailing thoughts there. My, my first thought is when kids are willing to tell me, I generally start with, hey, I really appreciate you being willing to share this with me. Are your cuts healing? Are they still bleeding? Do we need to have them looked at? Um, and kids are usually pretty honest at that point. Once they've shared that, it's, that this is what's happening for them, and experience that you're not going to, you know, freak out. And for the record, if you are going to freak out, do it in your head, not on your face. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's okay. Uh, but our face needs to stay as neutral as we as we can. And so I really, I want to make sure that they're medically okay. And then beyond that, for me, it's not really about the cutting or the self-harm behavior. It's about what's driving that. Uh, is it anxiety? Is it depression? Is it anger? Is it fear? Is it sadness? Is it feeling alone? Um, it's it's the feeling behind that and, and probably even more so. So it's the trauma that's behind it because there's usually something that's happened uh, that's driving it. And, and as I said, you know, that may be a mental health something. Uh, there may be more to it. Uh, not always, that doesn't always come out in the first conversation, but it's really, it's not about the coping skill. It's about the thing that you need to cope with. And I imagine that would be hard to focus on what's going on beneath the self-injury and not focus on, you know, taking away the tools or focusing on the actual behavior. Yeah, I, th- I think yeah. especially for parents, it's it's really hard not to say, just stop. Yeah. You're hurting your body. I love you. Please don't hurt yourself. Um, yeah. And I'm a mom and I really, I desperately get that. But I think we really need to be aware that if we take away that coping skill, however unhealthy we may know it to be, if it's the only coping skill that's stopping someone from getting to the place of wanting to think about suicide, we can't take it away from them. Um, and I've, I've had students where that's been the case. Someone has told them they just have to stop. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, now what do I do? And so then they get to the place of thinking about suicide. And so it's really important to help them find alternate ways of coping, uh, which goes back to what Sierra said about the why. Uh, why are you cutting? You know, if you're cutting because you're angry, uh, then telling you to go and have a hot bath is not going to help. If you're cutting because you're angry, we need to do something to help cope with the anger. So generally a more physically active kind of thing. Can you talk a little bit about what might help? For kids who are angry, you know, we talk about going for a run or if you get, you know, a lot of newspapers delivered to your house, taking stacks of newspapers and trying to rip them. For some kids, just really scribbling really hard can work. But generally, it's the more active physical things, you know, kids that have a punching bag. Uh, I had a group of grade 12 boys actually once tell me that they threw clothes into a, a garbage bag and tied it shut and then beat it up. You know, what a great, great way, super organic thing came coming from these boys. So just finding things that sort of match with the emotion that's going on. You know, I've got kids who, you know, they they need to calm down. They get just get so overwhelmed with the anxiety and stress that they just want to cut because then it, it brings focus. And so, you know, I, I often will suggest yoga because it's really good for focus. Uh, but I've got some kids who just, there's no way you're going to convince them to do yoga. And so it's working with them and what works for them. They are well 
of information beyond what they give themselves credit for. Uh, it can also be a really great way to build relationship by saying, here's what works for me when I'm feeling stressed, angry, numb, whatever the emotion is, uh, to share some of those. Mm. And thinking about all the things she's saying, Sierra, and all the strategies and how we need to find better ways, do you remember the things that you started doing and what, what kind of helped get to that place where you felt that you could stop? Yeah, it was definitely a long journey. And so there were years of of using that coping strategy and not wanting to stop and then years of wanting to stop and sort of being unable to and working towards that and then finally getting to a place where I was able to stop. And so there were many things that were helpful along the way. Um, A big one was therapy. So DBT or dialectical behavioral therapy um, was was a big part of my recovery. For example, there's a skill called TIP, and that can involve using cold water. So when I'm feeling, um, when I was feeling really emotionally intense and just unable to think outside of that emotional intensity, splashing my face with cold water actually really calmed me down and was sort of a a physical way to like, where I may have previously used self-harm to do that. I think you spoke to, um, you know, tools being taken away. Um, And I know there was actually points during my journey where I may have asked my mom to take away tools because in in those moments that was helpful. There were other times when I didn't want those tools taken away. And so I actually had a a psych nurse one time suggest, instead of getting rid of your tools because I wasn't willing in in that moment to get rid of them, throw them out, um, making it more difficult to access them. So for example, a razor blade, um, instead of throwing it out, freezing it in a block of ice. And then in those times when I really wanted to self-harm, I had to take out the ice and wait for it to melt. And that would give me whatever, 20 minutes to think about it and decide whether I really wanted to do that. Or similarly, locking it away in a box and kind of hiding the key. So I had to find the key and unlock the box. And it gave me more time to kind of think about whether I really wanted to engage in this behavior right now. So those were some of the the strategies and tools and and ways that I am yeah, sort of recovered from that behavior. Mm, Thank you. And in thinking of that, those are the things you did during coping that way. Mm -hmm. What kind of things now do you feel are really important to you in in being able to stop and continue to stay Mm -hmm. not Mm self-harming? After years of working at it and being able to stop, I'm at a point now where I can say that it doesn't feel like it's even an option because I've, I've been able to abstain for it from so long that there are times when I'm still feeling really you know, worked up, let's say, and I, it kind of crosses my mind, but I'm like, no, like, I haven't done it in over a year and a half now, and um, what other tools can I use? So mm. I think just getting older and finding meaning in, in my life and the work that I do, um, able t- to to reach a place of sort of growing up and, and finding independence and, and doing important work and feeling good about myself and the work that I was doing, as well as, as having, you know, I, I had many supportive people along the way and continuing to have th- those supportive people. So um, my mom is still a big support, um, my partner, my friends, learning how to lean on those supports in healthy ways. The one thing that stuck out for me from both of you is that um, this is a collaboration between you and the people helping you, that it's not something you can be told how to stop or something that you just are able to give up easily. So I, I appreciate the journey that it's taken to get to here and the learning that we get to have from you now. Thank you. I think the other piece that's really important in what Sierra said is that, you know, that trusting a relationship with, with confidential people. Uh, as a mom, it's really hard to, to, to understand and to, to grasp that some my kids may talk to some people and they may not be able to turn around and tell me what's going on you know certainly working in a school that's a challenge sometimes because self-harm isn't isn't universally a reportable behavior and so for you know most school districts most doctors it really varies how and how much they're going to 
report back to parents. And please, you know, I really would want parents to know and hopefully be able to trust their their child support people because we really are here to help your child. And sometimes, you know, the child's trust in keeping that and not telling you right away really is in the child's long-term best interest. As a mom, I struggle with that. It's hard, um, but it really, those trusting relationships, you know, like Sarah was saying, if that physician had broken her trust and, mm-hmm. and shared with your mom before you were ready, you know, things would have come out very differently and, and the relationship with mom is very different. Mm-hmm. And for a child or youth who is self-injuring for either the parent or the other supporting adult who's supporting them, mm-hmm. what are some ways that they can start to have that conversation with them? A lot of it will depend on the state of your relationship with your child. But certainly, you know, to me, it really always starts with that place of caring and concern. Mm-hmm. You know, I've noticed this behavior. I've noticed these marks. I'm really worried about you. Can we talk about what's going on for you? You know, choosing the right time and place, you know, before you're both rushing off for school and work is not the time to open this conversation. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that's obvious. But to be able to sit down and have this conversation and from a completely non-judgmental place, just I'm, I'm worried about you and, you know, can we talk about this? Uh, or do you want to stop? You know, like Sierra said, she wouldn't, didn't want to stop for a while. Uh, so, okay, how can I help you in... in in the harm reduction aspect how can we minimize the the physical harm to you you know maybe there's something you're willing to try for 15 minutes before you choose to cut just to to give yourself that break and obviously i would really encourage parents as well to to look into finding service providers whether that's at the school whether that's a doctor whether that's a therapist in the community there's a lot of options if you have a doctor that you trust start there uh, if you've got a therapist that you trust, start there. If you've got a school counselor or, or school teacher, really anyone at the school that you trust, start there. It's okay to try multiple people. It's okay to question, you know, did they ask you questions about self-harm or did they skip over it? Um, it's, o- it's okay. Parents, respect your kids, trust your kids. Mm-hmm. They'll open up with the person who's the right person. But it's a hard one to to navigate alone. Uh, so both mm-hmm. for you and the child, I think having some community or, or social supports is really important. Kim and Sierra, if parents and youth aren't quite ready to go and see their family doctor or reach out to someone at school, are there any other online or phone resources that you would recommend? So one of the websites that I tend to recommend a lot is youthinbc.com. Uh, It's got some online chat features. It's based in BC, which is fantastic. Tons of reliable information for for teens and for parents. And there's there's a couple good apps as well. Virtual Hope Box uh, is out of the US, but it's a really neat app that's got some really good coping strategies in it. But the best part is there's an actual virtual box where you can upload you know, reasons to, to stop harming, reasons to, to keep living if you're at a point of suicide, uh, things that make you happy. Because when you're dealing with those big emotions that Sierra talked about, um, you can't stop and think about what's positive. So to have it two clicks away on your phone mm-hmm. can be really positive. Calm Harm is another one that a lot of my students have told me they really like, uh, which is another app. Uh, and they're both free. And, you know, if you're a parent or a young person who doesn't know where to start, you can also reach out to the Kelty Mental Health Resource Centre because there are supportive people there that can can really help you navigate um, the system. Uh, So you can reach out to the Kelty um, by email, by phone, um, and you can also drop in in person. Great, thank you. So in thinking of those families and the ones who were asking them to wear their fear and, and anxiety quietly and not on their face, <laughs> um, hard thing to do and, and something that uh, we know makes a big difference because um, how kids see us show up really does impact what they're going to say to us next. So how can you, we as parents, what kind of things can you share with us that can help us manage our own anxiety and fears around what our kids are doing and, and how scared we are? Oh, the first thing I would do is the same thing I tell my, my students to do, take a breath. 
um, you know, when I, I say to students, you know, are you self-harming or can we talk about it? If they're willing to talk about it, one of the first things I say is, okay, how about we take a breath together because you just shared a really big thing with me. Yeah. And for, for parents, I think that does double duty because it, the, the st- your child will hear will feel very validated and hear care and concern from you. Um, it also gives you a chance to take a much needed breath because you're freaking out. So that's the first place that I would always start. Um, and then for parents, after you've had this conversation with your, your teen or your child, um, ideally find someone that you trust that you can talk to and say, here's what's going on and I'm scared or I'm c- confused and I don't know what to do. And, you know, if you don't have that person in your life, there's some fantastic online resources. Obviously, they can call into Kelty and, and talk to supportive people there. Uh, there's always crisis lines that you can call and talk to uh, just to get that support for you so that you're Mm, concerns and and fears don't get put onto your child. But what about those people who still hear that that all of this is happening for a reason and blame themselves? I think, you know, for parents, we always, and I say this to myself as much as to anybody else, we have to to cut ourselves some slack. Uh, We're all doing the best we can with what we've got. And, you know, if, if what I have today isn't as much as I have tomorrow, then maybe I'll do differently or do better tomorrow. You could spend hours unpacking why it all has happened, um, or you can just say, this is where we're at, and how do we move forward in a, in a better, more positive way? Yeah, and to give themselves some credit for being here today to listen to this and find and out some more. You know what? If you yeah. are giving yourself the time and space to, to have this conversation with your child, you're doing something right. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it takes courage. It takes a, a lot of vulnerability. It takes uh, a lot of faith to sit down and and open this conversation with your child, not knowing where it's going to go. There's always hope to move forward tomorrow. Thank you so much, Sierra and Kim, for coming on and sharing your experience and your knowledge. I think it's a really tough topic to to talk about, um, and it's really helpful for for parents to hear what you guys have to say. Um, Just to close things out, were there any kind of final thoughts or words of wisdom that either of you wanted to share? Um, brainstorming, how can I continue to have a trusting, caring, connected relationship with my child? That's an amazing place to start. And, you know, my journey speaks to that it, it can be something that that, ha- that someone experiences or goes through for, for a long time, um, but it is possible to come out of it for sure. Wonderful. Yeah. I would say there's always hope. There's always hope. Thank you both for sharing and uh, caring so much to share this with others. Thanks. Thank you for having us. So thanks so much, Victoria, for co-hosting this episode with me today. It was a pleasure. Yes, it was great to do this with you. And thank you so much to our listeners out there as well. This episode of Where You Are is a collaboration between BC Children's, Kelty Mental Health Resource Centre, and Family Smart. So you can find the resources mentioned in this episode at keltymentalhealth.ca. And if you want to watch this podcast, it'll be included on the Family Smart Resource Library and used as an ongoing part of our In the Know series, which takes expert speakers like today and shares them out for young people, families, and those working to support the mental health of children and youth. So glad we shared that episode again, Michelle. Me too. It's one that's really stuck with me ever since we recorded it. Where You Are is brought to you by BC Children's Kelty Mental Health Resource Centre. Our show is produced and edited by Emily Morantz with audio engineering by Sam Sagan. Audio production by Geraudio. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you might be listening now. Looking for more great episodes of Where You Are? Find us wherever you listen to podcasts and of course at keltymentalhealth.ca slash podcast. We hope you'll make us a go-to resource to promote your family's mental health and wellness from where you are to where you want to be.